Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 130. We are finished with Psalm 119. We'll look, take two weeks to look at Psalm 130. And this is our first week. Hear now the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Father, we pray now that you would, by your Spirit, enlighten our hearts and minds, that we would receive your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Psalm 130 is a psalm that many, uh, through the ages, has consider one of the most blessed psalms in the Psalter. And the reason for that is because it is one of the clearest statements of the gospel of grace. Many of you know that Martin Luther, one of his favorite psalms was Psalm 46, and he wrote a hymn based on that psalm, A Mighty Fortress. But Luther also wrote a hymn based on this song. The hymn begins, From depths of woe I raise to thee. The voice of lamentation, Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities dost mark, our secret sins and misdeeds dark, O who shall stand before thee? See, Luther called this a Pauline psalm because in it we get a taste of the forgiveness that comes by grace alone apart from works. In fact, it's one of the best expositions in the Old Testament of the way of salvation by grace on the basis of Christ, the basis of the Messiah's atonement. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We'll spend most of our time in the first four verses and then return next week. But Psalm 130 is part of a group of Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascents. Uh, 120 to 134, they go together. And while the pilgrims traveled uh, to Jerusalem, they sang these songs as they made their way up to this city for all the great Jewish festivals. Well, nine days after the Feast of Trumpets, on the 10th day of the seventh month, Israel observed what was called the Day of Atonement. And based on its content, many agreed that Psalm 130 was probably the song on that day that was sung. Now, the Day of Atonement was the high point of the year and included some unusual features. The high priest had to wear special white linen garments on the Day of Atonement. There were two goats used. One was sacrificed as a sin offering. The other one was released into the desert. And the high priest made his annual entrance into the Holy of Holies Uh, The details are found in Leviticus chapter 16 and Leviticus 23. Let me read to you just quickly from Leviticus 23. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. 
It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it's the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. Now, Psalm 130 doesn't touch on the actual ritual of the Day of Atonement. What it does do, rather, is deal with the way people prepared for, uh, prepared themselves for the Day of Atonement. That's what we find in uh, Leviticus 23, talking about the preparation. In Leviticus 23, verse 27, you shall afflict yourselves or your souls. And verse 29, for whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And in verse 32, and you shall afflict yourselves or your souls. And see, that's what the psalmist is doing. He's probing the depths, says verse 1 the depths of his soul and facing the reality of his sinfulness and finding forgiveness as there's four states and redemption as verse seven and eight state in God's promises. In fact, you could, you could say that Psalm 130 is a literal psalm of ascent. It starts in the lowest depths of despair and this abyss of depression, but it it's progresses steadily upward until it reaches the high ground of faithful and steadfast hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And, and so the psalmist here, from the depths of despair to the high ground of, of hope, he ascends. But he begins in the depths, and that's important to remember. In, in Hebrew, the depths were specifically uh, dangerous and deep waters. Uh, the image occurs uh, throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel. But it's probably most powerfully presented in Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the floods engulf me. That's where the psalmist is. He's in the, the miry depths. And that's what our psalmist is in Psalm 130. He's, he's in deep waters. He is afflicted. And so it's out of the depths that he cries out to the Lord. And this should raise a question for us. What is it that brought the writer of Psalm 130 into this dangerous condition? That he's crying out in his affliction. And some people say he's being attacked by other humans and it's brought him to the depths. Some say it's some type of personal suffering he's experiencing in the depths. Uh, however, I, I don't think at least that's not the main focus. I, I agree with John Owen, uh, the great Puritan pastor and writer, when he writes that the psalmist cries out under the weight and waves of his sins. And uh, think about the psalm. In verse 3, what do we read? Uh, about marking iniquities, or another translation, keeping a record of sins. And then in verse 4, we read about forgiveness. And in verses 7 and 8, we read about redemption. And, and so the context of the psalm is, is sensing the weight and feeling the weight of sin, and, and, and out of that, the hope of salvation. 
And so that's where we find our psalmist. He's, the crashing waves of sin are engulfing him. He was drowning in the deep water of despair, overwhelmed by the rising waves of anguish brought about because of the sinfulness uh, that he has and, and recognizing that. And so he cries out to God, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. There's great emotion in that line, crying out, hear, please, be attentive. The psalmist is saying, look, I have no other appeal to make. There is nothing I can say at this point. All I can do when, when, when the waves of uh, the crashing waves of despair hit me because of my sin, all I can do is cry out for mercy and pray that you will hear my plea. And, and, and understand, beloved, this is not a quick 20-second plea for mercy. You know, he isn't just reciting some rote prayer. It's not like he's about to go in the bed, and as he falls in the bed to sleep, he says, oh, I'm a sinner. Everybody is, but forgive me, and then falls asleep, right? That's not it. it, it this comes from the very depths of his soul. He's no, he, he sees no other way of escape. He sees no other way of, of keeping himself from drowning in his sin than to, to cry out to God for mercy. But why now? What has brought him into this dangerous situation? We know it's his sin, but why now? He's been a sinner all along. Uh, what has brought him to this point now? And, and I believe it's the context that helps us here. I, I said that this is a psalm of ascent, um, one of them, but in the, within those psalms, there's a triad here of Psalm 129, 130, and 131. Those three go together. In Psalm 129, we read this, the Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked. That's verse 4. And then if the righteous God sides with his people, then no foe can prosper. That's good news, right? If the righteous God sides with his people, we don't have to worry. The people that are his people don't have to worry. Their enemies won't prosper. But then you start thinking, well, I'm not that righteous. And that's what the psalmist is thinking about here. If this righteous and just God comes among his people, will not his righteous presence expose and condemn their sin? And so who's righteous? And so you see, it's in light of God's righteousness, it's in light of God's justice that the psalmist is kind of submerged into this uh, ocean of guilt. He doesn't do what a lot of us do, right? Compare his sin in the context of other sinners. I mean, I sin, but I feel relief because you're worse, right? That's our attitude at times. What he does is this. He says, here's my sin and here's my God. My God is holy and I am not. And it's in light of that that he recognizes his sinfulness. See, the problem we have in the church today, and I don't mean our church per se, but we have very little awareness of the greatness of our sinfulness, how sinful we really are. We, 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 we are very good at pointing out the sins in the world. And, and the sinners in the world are really good at sinning, just like Christians in the church are, but, you know, they have some outrageous sins out there that we like to point out, and we should, and we should confront them. But we have very little awareness of our own sinfulness. Why? 
Why is that the case? It's because we have very little awareness of who God is. You ask, what is sin? What is sin? And, And the catechism, the answer is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is understood in the context of God. We in the church love to make uh, certain things sin that the Scripture doesn't talk about. It it probably helps us to keep our mind off of the things that the Bible does talk about that are sinful. I'll give you an example of one. Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly. We don't do that. And the commandments, as you know, sin is understood in the context of who God is and His law. And if you don't know God as He's revealed in the Bible... It's not surprising that you don't take or a person doesn't take sin seriously. It seems like most of us in the American church don't take sin that seriously. But we should. Why? Because our God is holy. Because our God is just. Our God is righteous. He is altogether perfect. And He does not tolerate sin. And His justice demands that sin be punished. Look at verse 3. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, another translation is, if you, Yahweh, were to keep a record of wrongs, O Adonai, who could stand? He uses two different words there for Lord. The psalmist moves from this image of the sea being engulfed uh, by the sea, and now he's in the courtroom. And, and in the courtroom, in that short sentence that he brings up, he calls God Lord twice. He says, Yahweh and Adonai. And in doing so, the one writer says, the psalmist intimates a very awful sense of God's glorious majesty and a dread of his wrath. He's saying, oh, Yahweh, oh, Adonai, who could stand? Who, who, could, who could stand? Well, let's answer that question. Who could stand? He answers it himself. It's rhetorical. No one can. No one can go into the courtroom of God and stand before Him themselves and say, I am righteous. You must hear me and listen to me. No. John Owen, who I mentioned earlier, wrote an exposition of this psalm. It was hundreds of pages, but he said this. God so far marks all sins and all persons that He sees them, God knows them, He disallows them, and He's displeased with them. Every sin in you. This cannot be denied without taking away all grounds in fear and worship. To deny it is to deny the very being of God. It's to deny His holiness. It's to deny His righteousness. And it's to deny His existence. But, he says, there is a day appointed when all men of the world shall know that God knew and took notice of all and every one of their most secret sins. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hebrews 4 says, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God is omniscient. He, he, He sees everything. No sin is hidden from his sight. And God is righteous and just, and so our sin must be punished. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23. And the psalmist understood this. And so as he enters the courtroom, as it were, as he's brought before the majestic and marvelous and great and glorious, holy and just judge, he knows that he cannot justify himself before this judge. He cannot plead not guilty. He has no defense. So desperation ends up filling his heart, and it causes him to fall prostrate before God's awesomeness and cry out with this urgency, Lord, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. There, there's no mumbling in a, in a casual, half-hearted manner here. The cry comes from the depths of his soul. He sees the perfection of his God. He's brought into the courtroom, as it were. When he sees God's perfections, he falls down and says, all I can ask for is mercy. I need your mercy, Lord. See, we need to recover a sense of sin. We need to discover how desperate our condition is apart from God. We need to know that God's wrath is terrible and impending reality. A voice says we need to come out of our sad fantasy world and begin to tremble before the awesome holiness of our almighty judge. Do you know how sinful you are? Maybe there's unbelievers here today or, or, or watching. You have not come to Christ yet. You, you don't believe in Jesus. You, you think that's silly. You, you realize that you're a sinner and that someday you will stand before this awesome and mighty judge. And you say, I don't believe that. That's okay. You don't have to believe it. It's true. And you, you violate his law. You are a sinner, as Jonathan Edwards said, in the hand of an angry God. And week after week, you test his patience. You, you, you mock him by showing up to worship if you're not a believer. You, you refuse to bow your knee to him. You refuse to cry out for mercy. What do you think the outcome of that meeting will be with him if you don't receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? What will happen? What do you think will be the outcome of living as an enemy of God when you breathe your last breath and you stand before the righteous judge? And see, the psalmist understood this condition. He did not take it lightly. He took it seriously, and he cried out to God for mercy. And that's the call to you. If you're an unbeliever, you must do the same before it's too late. You need to plead for his mercy. You do not deserve it. That's why it's called mercy and grace. You do, you do not earn it. You cannot earn it. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to get a, a not guilty verdict from the righteous judge. All you can do is plead for his mercy in the name of Jesus Christ and come before him and on the basis of what Christ accomplished, on the basis of his life, on the basis of his death, on the basis of his resurrection, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible says what? You will be saved. You will be forgiven. That is the gospel. See, what it will be the verdict? When a person truly feels the weight of his sin, and, and you cry out to God for mercy. And this side of the cross, we know in the name of Jesus. What is the outcome? What is the result? You know the answer. Look at verse 4. But, that's a, that's a wonderful word, but. God is righteous. Yes, but. God is holy. Yes, but. God is just. Yes, 
but he must punish sin, as I said, yes, but we must, uh, we need to be judged, we must be judged, yes, but, but with you there is forgiveness. Literally, it reads, but with you forgiveness. Forgiveness, that is the verdict if you come and you cry out before him. That is the outcome. That is the glorious good news. We just heard the bad news. People don't like to hear the bad news. You need to understand the bad news in order to know what the good news of Jesus is. Maybe you've seen that bumper sticker. It's on the back of cars that says, Jesus is the answer. Somebody pulled up alongside the person and said, hey, what's the question? We got to know the question. And the question is, how do I deal with my sin before a holy God? How do I deal with the fact that I'm an enemy of God? How do I handle the fact that, that I won't repent, I won't turn apart from him? That's the question and the answer. That's the bad news too. And the answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is the good news. And the good news only makes sense in the context of the bad news. In the context of God's wrath, in the context of God's judgment, God is totally righteous. And apart from us being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are totally depraved. But, but, but with him there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Maybe you're aware of your sin. You might be that 1.01% of people in the world that are actually aware of how sinful they are. One preacher says, suppose you're only of those apparently rare people in our day who are truly troubled by their sin. They're troubled by how bad they are, their wrongs, their transgressions. Maybe you're a person like that and you're in the depths. Where can you turn for help? Well, you can't turn inward because all you'll find is sin there. You can't look to yourself. That's not the answer. The only source for help is the merciful God. You know, think about this. You could go your whole life in light of your sin and know that the person you sinned against, maybe it's a family member, and they may never forgive you. You may have coworkers you work with, and you sinned against them because you're not perfect, and they may never forgive you. Your, your, your spouse may never forgive you. Your children may never forgive you. Maybe you're sitting here saying, well, forget that. I can't even forgive myself. All that may be true, but there is one who will forgive you, and it is God. God is a forgiving God. I want you to consider some of the scripture. There's in no particular order. Isaiah 43, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. So, uh, it was Isaiah 43, 25, 26. Acts 3, 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Hebrews 10, 17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Daniel 9, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Here's my last one. I could go on and we could be here all night. I could keep reading these because there's more and more, but here's the last one. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 to 14. God is a forgiving God. He he forgives you when you humbly fall before him in repentance, confessing your sin. And he can forgive you because he has punished Christ in your place. That is how he remains just. Look at verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful or full redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. See, that plentiful redemption, that full redemption that the psalmist speaks of, it it, it points forward. It's the Lord. And we know the Lord as Jesus Christ. He accomplished this plentiful redemption. He paid the debt that we could not pay. He took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness so that now we can stand Who can stand? Those who are in Christ can stand before a holy God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with Christ, there is forgiveness. And so in Christ, we can stand. Let's go back to that courtroom. Again, just to to help paint the picture. When you or I stand before this majestic, holy, marvelous, great, and glorious judge, we know that we cannot justify ourselves. We know as we stand there, as much as people today would love to say, oh, you know, I had a friend once said, someday God will need me and then I'll repent or then I'll follow him. As if God doesn't mind about our sins, it doesn't know our sin. Despite all that, when we stand before him, we'll recognize that we have no defense. And at that point, desperation should fill our heart. And so we must fall prostrate before God's awesomeness and cry out with urgency, Lord, In the name of Jesus, be merciful to me. In the name of Jesus, be merciful to me. And then what will happen, as it were, again, this is me painting a picture, our advocate, Christ, will step forward. Jesus, the the righteous judge, and these men will say, these women are guilty of many sins, terrible sins, that is true, but I have paid the penalty. I I have ransomed them. I have redeemed them. I bore your wrath and judgment on the cross on their behalf, and now I have clothed them in my righteousness. They are no longer under the penalty of sin. They are no longer condemned. They are no longer totally depraved. Even as I am righteous, I declare them righteous." Pardon them, Father, on my behalf. Justify them on my behalf. Adopt them on my behalf. Redeem them plentifully, fully on my behalf. And so Jesus had stepped forward, and the beloved, the Father will respond, it is done. It is done. He will say, as it were, that is why I sent you, my son. I sent you into the world that those whom I chose before the foundation of the world may be forgiven. And so those who come before me in the name of Christ, they can go free. See, do you feel the weight of your sin? 
Well, then turn to Christ and enjoy the forgiveness that he alone can offer. That's the message of the first four verses of Psalm 130. Again, you see how it's a Pauline psalm. We have nothing to offer. There's nothing that we can plead to God on our own behalf, but we come in the name of Jesus. It's a Pauline gospel. It's a psalm that offers forgiveness by grace apart from works. Now, when I was studying for the psalm, as I always do, I read Dr. Boyce's commentaries, and he mentions four things concerning forgiveness that I adapted that I believe are worth mentioning. And let me quickly go through them. First, God's forgiveness, understand, is all-inclusive. Look at verse 4. Notice that it doesn't say there is forgiveness for this sin, there's forgiveness for that sin. It leaves nothing out. It says what? There is forgiveness. Forgiveness for any sin by anybody. It could be murder. It could be adultery. It could be lust. It could be gossiping. It could be lying. It could be stealing. It could be coveting. It could be failing to keep the Lord's day, taking God's name in vain. Whatever it may be, any of these sins, there is forgiveness with God. Whatever condition you're in, no matter how far down in the depths you are, no matter how deplorable There is full and all-inclusive forgiveness in Christ with God. You know, in in the church, most of us have our lives a little bit put together. We're pretty good, and we do look out into the world, and we see a lot of deplorable people. I mean, it's just reality. People that stand for things that we just despise and understand are are sin in the sight of God and, and deplorable. Understand that every one of those people can be saved. Their sins, all of them, can be forgiven. It's all-inclusive if you come to him forgiveness. Uh, second thing, boy, says God's forgiveness is for now, but with you there is forgiveness. This is present tense, but with you, forgiveness. You don't have to hope that someday, somehow you'll be forgiven, and, and I'm just going to do this thing, like go to church and, and, and try my best and, and be kind to puppies and all these different things that people may do and think that God will someday accept me. You don't have to do any of that. Well, you probably should, but, you, you know, nothing wrong with puppies. But the point is none of that will save you, right? On the last day at the final judgment, You don't have to stand trembling, uncertain, until the pronouncement is made. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to earn it. You could never earn it. There are churches full that are teaching this. Roman Catholic is a good example. You can't know if you're forgiven. And that's why we set up purgatory for you. So you can spend a half a million years down there um, purging your own sin so you can be forgiven and accepted. But the Bible teaches differently. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, however you have acted, your sins in Christ, past, present, and future, are forgiven. At this very moment, you can pass from death to life and know that your sins have been forgiven forever. John MacArthur was on a plane once, and people asked him, what what do you do for a living? He goes, oh, it's my job to teach people how to be forgiven by God so that when they die, they know where they're going. That's what the gospel teaches. That's what the psalm teaches. That's what my role is, among other things. But that is the role to teach you that you can know right now you are forgiven in Christ alone. But third, 
God's forgiveness is for those who want it. It is there, but you must ask God for it and trust Him to give it to you. Yes, you can't do that on your own. You need the help of His Spirit. That's why you cry out for mercy. You need regeneration. But that aside, you are to cry out. The writer of the psalm is what? He's confessing his sin. He's not covering it up, verse 1. He's asking God for mercy, knowing he has no claim on God, verse 2. He's believing. He is trusting God when he says, with you there is forgiveness, verse 4. You know, thousands of people every Sunday confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins when they read the Apostles' Creed. Thousands of people. We read it last week. But have you actually asked for forgiveness? Have you actually asked, not just read the words, but truly said, Lord, I need your forgiveness? If not, just bow before Almighty God and ask Him for forgiveness, and He will provide it. It is promised through Christ. And let me be clear, God's forgiveness is not just for the unbeliever, although I focus there, it's for the believer also. That's why we have a confession of sin every week. When you hear the message and the message of the psalm, you may have a tendency to think, yeah, those people are deplorable out there and they need to hear this. But remember who wrote it, it's a believer. It's a psalm, someone inspired by God, a true child of Abraham. It is the cries of a believer. And so as believers, we can bow before him and know that we'll be cleansed daily for our ongoing sin and be washed those sins away only to discover there's more until the day he brings us home. We have been forgiven of the penalty of sin. We are presently having sin eradicated from our lives and then we'll be away from its presence forever in eternity. It is the promise. And so it's the cry of the believer. It it needs to be the cry of the unbeliever, but it's the cry of the believer as well. Bow before him and be forgiven. Well, fourth and finally, I'll close with this. uh, uh, God's forgiveness, God's forgiveness leads to godly living. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Feared. You would think maybe it would say loved. You know, that, that you're kind of swell. You know, thank you for that. Uh, but it's, uh, it's really almost the same. Spurgeon translated, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be loved and worshiped and served. See, the kind of forgiveness we're talking about here does not lead to complacency. Yeah, maybe you've heard that before, right? If, well, if, if this gospel that you're talking about, a gospel of grace is true, well, then people can just live any way they want. Do you mean to tell me someone can murder most of their lives and then just repent of their sins and go to heaven? Yes, I'm telling you that. And I'm also t- like the thief on the cross. And I'm also telling you, though, that that type of forgiveness that comes from God that is a work of Christ in our lives by the Spirit, that kind of forgiveness changes a person that's truly forgiven. And so the effects of forgiveness are love and worship and service. We won't be complacent. We'll take our sins seriously. We won't live a carefree life with no regard for God and His law as if, well, then I'm saved. No. It's the opposite. What happens is when we are forget, when we understand how much we deserve His wrath, and yet we receive His love, it, 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 it causes us to have a greater awe for God. Someone once said, "Well, if this isn't the gospel that I'm preaching, then my gospel is better than the one that must be in the Bible, because this gospel gives all the glory to God." 
There's no other gospel than the biblical gospel. This, this gospel says, yes, God does the work. Yes, he changes your heart. Yes, you must believe. Yes, you must confess. But you are forgiven completely, and, and you are secure in that belief. And it doesn't cause you or shouldn't cause you to just run around and act like who cares anymore. If it's truly forgiveness, you'll have an all for God. You will love him even more, and you'll humble yourself before his holiness. See, it's by those effects that you measure whether you've been truly forgiven. It's not that those effects cause you to be forgiven. Do you understand the difference? I believe that Christ paid for my sins. I believe that I am forgiven in Christ. And because I believe that and because he gave me his Holy Spirit and he changed my heart, I now live for him. I live differently. I don't try to live differently so that he'll forgive me. I've been forgiven, and now I live differently. And the fruit of that forgiveness is seen in our lives, and that's how you know. Have you seen the fruit? Your love for God? The worship of God, love for his word, to sing his praises, praying to him, uh, fellowshipping with other believers, all these things. It's showing love to a neighbor that maybe is very difficult to love. All those things are, are the fruit of this forgiveness. And so, check your line. So ask yourself, beloved, if you have been forgiven through Christ alone, if you have been forgiven because what he has done Understand that it should lead you, and that's my prayer, that you would love him more deeply, worship him with joy, and serve him faithfully. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we talk much about sin, knowing that we are indeed sinners, and how marvelous it is, the grace of God that forgives us of all our sin and washes it away. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to see our sinfulness and appreciate all the more the grace and the mercy of our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.